Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you will know that I also run a Patreon page, where I have posted interviews, articles and videos all about conductors and the art of conducting. You can now pay for that content annually, and if you choose to do so, you can get a 10% discount over your year of subscription. Just click on the link on the show notes attached to this episode, and it'll take you straight to my Patreon page. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who won the 2017 Besançon Young Conductors Competition, and has since gone on to become Principal Conductor of Glyndebourne Touring Opera and Music Director of Opera de Rouen. It's a great pleasure to welcome Ben Glassberg. Ben, wonderful to see you and to chat to you today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Mike. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, as you know, because I, I think uh, you've listened to a few of the previous episodes, I start back at the very beginning. Before I start back at the very beginning, though, I sit down and do my homework, and I normally find a Wikipedia page or, or on your biography on your website, and I find out that you studied the violin or the viola or the bassoon from an early age and then studied it. I can find nothing about you, Ben. So the, the first opening, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the opening bit of this podcast is going to be completely new to me, and I'm really looking forward to it. So how did music first come into your life? Uh, at what age and, and what instruments? So I'm a percussionist uh, by training. Mm. Um, so that was my that was how I started. Um, and I got it, music is basically it's the fault of my grandparents. They took me to the Philharmonia kids concerts when I was uh, really young. Yeah. That, um, that Kevin Hathaway, the percussionist, actually, he presented them. And that was what made me want to be, become a percussionist. Mm. Um, and that sort of, yes, yeah, from there and then through that, eventually they started taking me to the more grown up concerts and, and opera and stuff. But, yeah, it was basically um, through playing percussion and my grandparents that I found this this world. Yeah. Did you I mean, often percussionists then drift towards a piano or something like that did you do you play the piano did you drift towards a piano yeah I, I call myself a piano player rather than a pianist because I'm <laughs> definitely not you know yeah. I can I can sit down and bash notes and and play pop songs but I definitely couldn't play a Beethoven sonata no. but yeah you know enough to get by yeah and what age was this when you started were you quite young on percussion uh, I think probably about seven, yeah, seven or eight. Yeah. So not uh, kind of crazy young prodigious, but young enough that, you know, I did it for a little while. Yeah. And and at any point, did you get into your local school? Did, you, did your school have an orchestra or local youth orchestra or county youth orchestra? Yeah, so I did, I did all of the sort of the county youth music. So I grew up, um, well, first in, in Essex and then we moved to, to Hertfordshire. So I played in Hertfordshire Schools Orchestra and then Hertfordshire Youth Orchestra. Um, and then I did NCO, National Children's Orchestra. Never got into NYO, which mm -hmm. is one of my biggest, biggest bugbears to this day. But, you know, <laughs> there were plenty of other better people. But, um, yeah, so I did loads of that. And my, I mean, the County Youth Orchestra that I played in was unbelievable. It was conducted by Peter, well, it still is conducted by Peter Stark, mm. who was also my, ended up being my first conducting teacher. And we did stuff. We did Rite of Spring, Guru Leader, Marla Six, all of that stuff. I mean, it was just, it was completely unbelievable, really, to play... Uh, yeah, I mean, playing second Timps in Guru Leader is one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it sounds like you were lucky in the fact that, um, I mean, I'm a lot older than you. Uh, I grew, my formative years of youth orchestra were in Kent, and Kent had a very good youth orchestra at the time. And even in back in those days, which was the mid-80s, um, Essex across the other side of the Thames had a very good music 
um, scene, a very good county youth orchestra. And Hertfordshire, I know, has always been another um, place where the youth orchestra... Uh, it's a shame, isn't it, that so many other counties have chosen to either scrap it or cut back. I mean, I, I've been back and worked in Kent and the money is cut back and touring has stopped completely. But yeah, would you consider yourself lucky? Because I think with the county youth orchestra scene, that will then, as you did, go on to National Children's Orchestra or National Youth Orchestra. Um, sorry to bring that up again for you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, don't, do you think that that was a very lucky... I mean, it's pure happenstance, isn't it? Definitely. And I think it's one of the biggest the biggest problems with sort of equality and access at the moment is that it is geographically dependent as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, and I and I was in, incredibly lucky. And it actually, so my, my wife grew up in Birmingham and it was so interesting talking about her experience. The Birmingham Music Service, it was extraordinary, the provision that they had. Yeah. When, you know, so she was also, she was a percussionist and a flute player and they had instrumental lessons for free. They had the percussion ensemble. They had BSSO. They had CBSO Youth Orchestra. All the acts, I mean, it's just amazing because they were they grew up there they yeah. had access to that and you know I was very similarly very lucky in in Hertfordshire um so I think it is a it's a real shame and I think it's going to unfortunately the way it seems to be going is that more and more places are losing the funding and therefore it will be fewer and fewer p uh, kids who have access to that sort of education yeah it's death by a thousand cuts isn't it by a lot of these yeah. things um it sounds like your wife had the unfortunate um, occasions to possibly have been conducted or badgered by me at some point in her life. I'm <laughs> almost certain that she was, but to be honest, as far as her experiences are concerned, it seems like she wasn't paying very much attention to the conductor in most of her youth orchestra days, but I'm almost certain that she probably was conducted by you, yes. Um, so going on, um, did you go to music college or university? Did you study, uh, i.e. therefore if you went to music college probably percussion or did you go straight into conducting what was your route into further education so I started I did a, a bachelor's degree at Cambridge and did lots of playing then so um, I it was just read music um, straight yeah. music which is sort of an academic degree which was incredibly challenging and I was I had some very patient supervisors I was sort of put in remedial harmony and remedial analysis very early <laughs> on um, but, you know, it got me by and basically there was loads of opportunity there to play and uh, conduct, which is one of the reasons I loved it. Yeah. So um, I did lots of, of timps for the chamber orchestra and, and like the, the, the best concert I've ever played in in my life was Beethoven Misa Solemnis with Roger Norrington conducting. Yeah. Um, it was just completely extraordinary, really. And playing on proper um, classical timps, it was just, you know, a really a, a, yeah, wonderful experience. So I, yeah, I did that. And then afterwards, I went to the academy for two years and did a two year conducting postgrad. Yeah. with Sean Edwards, who was amazing. Yeah. So uh, at one point, I interviewed somebody the other day, uh, and depending on the, my episode order, which I don't really decide too far in advance, um, depends on whether the people will have heard this or not, um, he called it that uh, he'd, uh, he'd been warned by a teacher of his about uh, stick poison. Uh, a friend of mine used to call it stickitis, <laughs> um, where you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you... you your thoughts became more and more about conducting and about what conducting did. Can you remember, was there a moment when you took your first draft of Stick Poison or did it just sort of gradually creep through you? I think it was definitely a gradual, gradual descent into madness over the course <laughs> of, I think it definitely started even probably before I got to university. Yeah. Suddenly, I, you know, I found this thing that I did that nobody else that I was friends with did. And it, you know, there's something quite exciting about that. And then, particularly studying for it, it to, to studying it for two years intensely at the academy you just become obsessed with 
the minutiae of of this weird like cheap bit of wood that you hold and it sort of becomes like I mean it's on one in one on one hand it's like a sort of magical Harry Potter one type thing but then on yeah. the other hand you're sort of thinking oh and if I just lift the little finger by half an inch that'll make the violins you know it's, you get sort of obsessed with this some of it useful but a lot of it rubbish yes um yeah. so I think it sort of gradually it gradually infected me and then actually it's it took a couple of years out of college to sort of start to detoxify, for want of a better word. And yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that your first conducting teacher was Peter Stark. I think he's a, his name's appeared on the podcast before, but not for very long. I mean, as it happens, he conducted my county youth orchestra when I was wow. in, it in the mid eighties. So he's been around a while. Sorry, Peter, if you're listening, I'm not. There's no slur on your age. Um, well, it shows how successful you've been. Um, what was Peter's teaching style like? His teaching was really, um, I think, psychological was, is the main word I'd use to describe right. it. So we spent more time talking than we actually did conducting. Uh, the actual, the technique stuff was, was, was fantastic, but he got, he got you to think about conducting in a way that I think was really helpful. And it just to ask sort of questions about how and why will might players react in this way? Oh. Um, so that was that was really wonderful, um, and I think yeah, I, we definitely spent a lot of time just discussing repertoire and discussing the psychological approach to conducting rather than actually just conducting it. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's the weird thing for people who are not conductors is that they think that we stand in a room, stood face to face, waving batons at each other, and it's not like that at all. I mean, you know, no. when I teach, uh, I spend a lot of time. We or, you know, the pupil and I will spend a lot of time looking at some video they may have taken but mainly pouring over scores and looking at places where what you do can affect what the orchestra does, but also at places where you're, you, you will be needed and places where you, you, you can just sit back and, mm. and sort of enjoy the, the view or enjoy the ride, <laughs> however it is, you know. And I, very rarely do, I mean, only with, with people who are starting out really with, with little or no skills at all, do I ever stand six feet away from them, waving my arms at them and getting them to copy me? I mean, that hardly ever happens, does it? I mean, most no. of it, is, as you say, is psychological thinking. Definitely. And I think one of the things that I've really, and that I really enjoyed about his teaching, and I think <clears throat> that I've really sort of tried to ex uh, explore more over the last few years is that, you know, if you, if you're planning gestures, inevitably you're going to come, you're going to come unstuck because different orchestras obviously respond in different ways to different things at different times. And actually, if I pre-choreographed how I'm going to conduct something, it will never, it will never be right and it will never be genuine because you have to respond to the players who are in front of you. So <clears throat> I find that I spend so much time studying the score and actually not really, unless it's something, you know, crazy thing like Rite of Spring, okay, it's probably worth practicing those beat patterns. Yes. But generally, I think it's just nice to allow the gesture to come from your, your study, but also in response to what you're receiving from the players. Oh, hurrah. <laughs> I'm going to say hurrah, hurrah. Um, yeah, I, I literally popped into my, Chris Seaman said much the same thing. Uh, no, I gave a talk the other day about the basics of conducting and pointed out that whilst, yes, you must think about how to give certain beats at certain times, it must never be a, a dance routine. You know, it's not something you would learn for the Saturday night episode of Strictly Come Dancing. It's not that. No. Because if well, it's not was, performance. It's no, relationship. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. And you're, you must react to what comes at you and also be ready at any point to help if 
they can't do it on their own. If they can't play together on their own and they need some help, that's what you're there for. You're, you know, you're the jockey on a horse. Most of the time the horse just wants to run, but occasionally, <laughs> exactly. occasionally it's going to get spooked by a car or it's going to see a rabbit it wants to chase after. And your job is then to grab the, rein, the reins and help out in whatever way possible. Um, and how did Peter's style differ from Sean's? Um, I mean, I, I like the fact that people have had more than one teacher because you assimilate all sorts of different angles. But yeah, tell us. They are, could not be more different, actually, <clears throat> which is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to have had them both. Um, Sean, uh, so she studied with Ilya Musin in Russia. Yes. So she's got that, <clears throat> that very specific approach to the connection to the sound and it's very technique driven. Yeah. So whereas uh, Peter's approach was more sort of philosophical, um, I don't know, abstract yeah. in some ways. <clears throat> Sean's approach is extremely uh, technical and practical. Um, and I found that studying with her, she managed, she was, she had this amazing ability to be both incredibly kind and caring, but also rip you to shreds when needed, <laughs> when needed. And I found it especially useful that I, so I started doing some professional work assisting and conducting while I was still with her and I'd sort of go off and do a project and come back and be all cocky and arrogant and she'd just tear me down to, to nothing which is which is what you need to be honest when you you know yeah. it's so easy to get a big head at that stage um so she was great at that but I found that um I left the academy conducting like I thought she wanted me to conduct yes. and that was one of the big obstacles that I found particularly I mean now I feel like I'm sort of getting there with it but to to shake that off and to keep the stuff that's useful because there's so much stuff that is just incredible you know the number of times I'm conducting a rehearsal and think okay what would Sean do because I really need to to fix it and it works but you do I think and it's it's probably an inevitability when you study at a conservatoire if you have a teacher with a strong methodology you do become a bit of a clone and then you you have to sort of shake that off don't you yeah I mean I, I, I look at that in terms of, of an instrumentalist. You know, I had the same violin teacher at, at the Conservatory in Birmingham for four years. Uh, to a degree, I was lucky in the fact that, you know, I was a, a foot taller and my hands were about twice the size. So I couldn't necessarily be a clone of, of my teacher, Jackie Ross, because, you know, she was, she was, as I said, a foot smaller and had tiny hands and I, was, I had shovels. So I had to sort of take what she told me and apply it to myself, but I could never become a clone. But I did see people become clones of teachers. Uh, and um, But when it came to conducting, I, I, I was never taught by one person. Uh, I suppose my biggest teachers were the people who stood in front of me for 20 odd years on the CBSO. And I think yeah. when I first started conducting, I would imagine I probably looked quite a lot like Simon Rattle, and a little <laughs> bit like Zachary Oromo. You know, they were the two people I worked with the most. Um, and then, yeah, as you as you go on, you sort of form your own. You do have to shake off that those certain things, but never forget. You know, for instance, I still think to this day, Zachary is the best conductor I've ever seen at showing the next tempo. Um, if it's yeah. a sudden gear change over a bar line, not an accelerando or not a, a rail, but if the suddenly changes tempo, he was the best at that I ever saw or ever played for. And so if I get to one of those places, I think to myself, right, how would Zachary do it? You know, why not, why not at least for that corner, copy somebody who you respect? At what stage of your career did you enter the Besançon Young Conductors competition 
Um, were you still studying at the Academy with Sean, or had you left? Uh, did you do a Jonathan Hayward who entered it um, and won it in, in between the two years that he was at the Academy? <laughs> so, uh, so John and I were at the Academy at the same time. He was right. a year above me. Yeah. Um, so uh, I entered it the summer after I finished there. So, yeah. um, uh, and similarly to, I mean, I remember it was so funny. I remember when when he went off to do it. Yeah. Um, and having and and sort of following his journey through it, and then feeling exactly the same, sort of going into it with absolutely zero expectations. Um, so for me, it was it was the first competition that I'd entered and I just wanted to sort of all I wanted was to stand in front of a professional orchestra and see what it was like. Yes. Because I'd done it a couple of times, but not very much. So I sort of applied um, just for, for the for the excuse that if I were to even get, you know, if you even get through to that first live round, you get to stand in front of a professional orchestra and rehearse. And yeah. I just wanted to know what it felt like. So, yeah, um, did that um, just after I finished at the academy and um it was just it was a bizarre week i mean the amount of repertoire that you have to get through and the the pressure and the can you remember what you yeah. had to conduct that week yes i it's imprinted <laughs> indelibly in my tell, life tell us yeah because i find this so, fascinating yeah. that you have to go through this in in a week to 10 days in these competitions so it was of course appalachian spring for the first round right conducting 101 which was um so we had to rehearse that it was not not a performance just they wanted to see how we rehearsed it then um if you got through that stage, the second day was opera. So it was extracts from Carmen, which was great because that's opera is my sort of my first love, I suppose. So that yeah. I felt sort of I thought I was thinking if I can get through to day two, I think I can get through to day three. That's yeah. all I, you know, because this is the one round where I think I should be all right. Yes. So that was that was lovely. Then got thankfully got through that one. And then in the semi-final, they just went mental with it and made us do Chopin's second piano concerto with no rehearsal. Oh. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, it's so hard, all of those catching the top of the runs and the bottom of the runs and, and get, you know, getting the orchestra to come and get that flexibility was so difficult. Um, mm. And then the, the same day, uh, extracts from Bach B minor mass, um, which was totally different having to sort of get the symphony orchestra to play stylistically in a way yeah. that you, you liked personally, but then also get the chorus to, to you know, to, to sound how you wanted. Mm. Um, and then the, the final was, was, was sort of, was more interesting in the sense that we had actual rehearsal time and then a concert. Yeah. So it was um, Debussy Nocturne, which was a wonderful piece. Um, Fledermaus Overture, Strauss, mm. and uh, a world premiere by uh, Philippe Ersan which was amazing actually. The world premiere was was such a great piece of music. Um, loads of sort of interesting colors to find. And it was quite sort of, it felt dramatic as well. It felt like there was lots yeah. to sort of get your teeth stuck into. I mean, um, so, yeah. I'll go back, Chopin. I mean, yeah, I've seen oh. a few people, um, few people fail quite miserably. The, that slow movement of the Chopin concerto. I mean, I remember that. I remember deciding I wasn't going to program that for a while until I thought I was yes. a much better conductor. Uh, and then uh, I think it was the second or third year that I I conducted the Dudley Piano Competition, Dudley International Piano Competition, and somebody got to the final doing Chopin two, and I thought oh, no. I, I couldn't get out of it. So <laughs> um, and I remember looking at it, thinking, right, don't get bamboozled by all of this, you know, seventeen notes uh, chromatic upbeat in the right hand follow the left hand of just playing simple quavers. If you stick yeah. with the quavers, you'll be all right. And and, and it sort of got me through it, um, thinking, right, follow the left hand, follow the left hand. Don't follow all these millions of notes in the right hand. Um, but yeah, it's a tricky one. That's a horrible thing to put in a competition. 
It is. And I just, I mean, I have this, this really clear memory of there's a passage in the middle of the slow movement when the, most of the strings play tremolo and then the, the basses basically have this pizzicato that comes yeah. Yeah, at very specific moments at the end of runs. And I, I remember the, the, the first time we did it and I put the beat down where the, the pianist finished and it was it felt like an eternity it was it but it was certainly like at least a second before yeah. the bassist decided to actually do the pizzicato and it was sort of my my first experience of professional orchestra playing behind the beat and yes. just suddenly that moment of panic of okay I've now got <laughs> to do what I was going to do but basically a second earlier than I thought I was going to do it and yeah. it's just it's was ah, oh, it was terrifying. I'm getting the night sweats now just thinking. About it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's that. There is that thing. I mean, you know, I often say to orchestras when it finishes, when a, you know, a slow movement finishes with a, a woodwind chord with a pizzicato at the front of it, and punctuating the beginning of a woodwind chord. I will often say, look, I'm only giving you one beat. Uh, you know, because you see conductors who who put a beat down and then a couple of flaps and hope that that's going to help them play together. I will say, I'll give you one very clear beat. Where you choose to play it and how you choose That's to do to it you. together is up to you. But yeah, I'm, I'm not giving you any more than one. Um, <laughs> one's, one should be enough. But yeah, that, That's all we get paid for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's true. Um, <laughs> um, and then the other thing that Jonathan mentioned in, in his episode, and I'm assuming it applies to you, and I found fascinating, and we later talked about the fact that nobody else seems to offer this, I'm assuming you got the the one year of help from a from an a, an, a, an agent or somebody involved in the in the management world. Did that was that still part of the prize when you won? It was. Um, so I was I was actually quite lucky because I I had representation before the competition started. Right. So my my manager, um, I, it's it's two people, Libby Abrahams and Alan Coates, and they basically came to see me at the academy, yeah. and off of the back of some work and basically I'd, so I'd started assisting at Glyndebourne and I'd had a jump in there already. Um, and off the back of that, they took me on. So, it, and they knew very well the lady who was the, um, who came with the prize of the competition. Yes. Um, they were they were colleagues already. So actually it was great that I, have, I already had that sort of security and I didn't have to deal with any of the immediate fallout from the competition but then also the Amy who was you know as an expert in dealing with conductors who win competitions because she'd done the same for Jonathan mm. was also on board so that first year I felt so supported which you yeah. really need because you you suddenly go from being a complete nobody in the business to to having some sense some sort of profile yeah. um, and it's it's quite a rapid change and I was I was 23 when I won the competition and that you know that's quite young to suddenly be like what on earth is going on here yeah, yeah. um i mean i mean i remember yeah go on no i was just gonna say i just i remember getting back from the competition and um it was my my dad was getting married um and i was we were at his wedding reception and my phone my phone rang and it was just a few people you know second wedding all that and he said oh go on take it take it and I, I took it and it was a producer from radio three saying can we interview you i'm in tune now about the competition i'm like what's i'm just i'm just having a meal with my family what's going on it's <laughs> sort of yeah it's um yeah. catches you by surprise well i think it's it's great that two became three that you had your managers already and then definitely that, um then you could have amy's help um, I would hope that you would agree with me in two points here that more competitions should do that. Um, 100%. I'm, yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that do you feel yourself lucky that because you'd already got representation that you didn't become 
the chum in the water at the after the final uh, and surrounded by you know six seven eight agencies all vying to maybe get you to sign on a dotted line what, what, i'm assuming that just did not happen to you because it, you already had representation and they it was unprofessional for them to have uh, you know swarmed around you like that exactly i mean there were a couple who sort of approached and then you know, we're saying, oh, do you, you know, a couple who said, you know, do you have representation? And as soon as you say yes, they're like, oh, okay, oh, sorry, let's yeah. let's not talk at all. You know, yes. yeah. then it was, it, yeah, it, it, I felt protected. And then it just felt like I could then relax Yeah. yeah. because I, I don't know what's right. I don't know what I should be doing at this stage. I just want to, I, A, I want to enjoy the fact that I've won this thing that I definitely was not expecting to win. And I want to drink some very nice champagne <laughs> with my wife. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then also kind of, yeah, it, I, I think it's so great that they do it at that competition. And I really think, I wish that, I mean, I feel like it should be a prerequisite of all com conducting competitions yeah. because it seems, I, mean, I think it's a given that it, winning conducting competitions is a good way of starting careers. Like that seems to be across the board how it happens. So therefore, surely we know that these people are probably going to go on to have careers. Why not help them to have as good a career as they can have by helping, you know, t taking things at the right speed. I mean, yes. I talk, I talk with my management all the time about pace and, and what I do when, and you know, when's the right time for this, when's the right time for that? Because like the last thing I want to do is stand up in front of an orchestra that I'm not ready to conduct with repertoire that I'm not ready to conduct mm. and screw it up because you only get one chance really. Yeah, you do. Well, you should. Yeah. 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 No, you, you normally only get one chance and, and you've perfectly segued into my, my next thought. Um, it wasn't a question I was going to ask, but it, I will now, is that I'm assuming there was a, a set amount of engagements that came as part of the prize of winning. Um, I know you've already mentioned that you you'd, were working at Glyndebourne and not long later became principal conductor of Glyndebourne Touring Opera, um, which meant that you must have been working there at a fair amount. So how quickly did you honour those engagements as part of winning? And did you try to do them as quickly as possible or did you then try or try to drip them over the next two or three years in conjunction with your your management how what was their approach or your approach to to those winning prize engagements sure well my gut instinct which was would, was let's do everything as fast as we can i'm so excited <laughs> thankfully um both because of the advice of the management, but also that because I had um, like work in the diary already, mostly as an assistant. So I had um, another summer at Glyndebourne, another tour at Glyndebourne. Actually, it meant that we, and I, you know, I didn't want to be the guy that like, oh, I've won this competition. I'm pulling out. I'm not doing any more yeah. assisting. Yeah. Um, so actually it meant that we were able to say, well, we could do this one this year. We could do this one then. And actually we did space them out. Yeah. So I feel like it was good. And, you know, some of them I only ended up doing two years later. And that was great because I was I'd had two, two years more experience. And then I think I got more out of the the uh, project. And I think the orchestra probably got more out of the project. Yeah. yeah. Um, so spacing it out was great. Um, and ultimately, not all of the engagements ended up working out because, yeah. you know, we just couldn't find dates that worked. And that's that's also OK. Yeah. Uh, from what you've just said, you said that you carried on assisting and I think that was a brilliant choice because that's such an uh, such an important way of learning the craft and learning how especially in opera how things are put oh, together uh, and, and by assisting another conductor 
um, and seeing how they work, you get another angle on how it's done. Uh, different from your teachers, different from other people you've assisted. You know, you'll pick up a, you know, a ready phrase here or a phrase there. You think, well, actually, maybe I won't use that phrase. That's not a very good, that's not a nice mm, phrase. No, absolutely, to, absolutely. And I, so I think assisting, doing, honouring the assisting was one of the best choices you could have made. I'm, yeah, I'm really pleased I did it. And I found that um, I was lucky to work with some really great people and really they were, they were all very different. So it was, I felt like, you know, so I, I assisted um, Yurovsky for a bit with the LPO on some symphonic stuff. And it was all, it was like the Ballet Russe, so Stravinsky, really his rep. And it was mm. just, ah, just amazing to learn from him. And then I assisted um, Omar Mare Velber on Butterfly at Glyndebourne. And that was just amazing because that sort of, that Puccini, that, that sort of repertoire is so hard it's so specific what you mm. need to do and just sort of he he and he was amazing that he really took the time to sort of invest in me and talk you know help me learn and has you know subsequently helped me find opportunities and stuff as well which is another good thing about assisting is it, it you know on a mercenary level it does help you build contacts of course which is part of what the you know the, the job is about mm. but honestly I'm so so pleased I did it because you just you pick stuff up by osmosis when you're sitting in that room watching watching the interaction of singers orchestra even things like for example watching um opera rehearsals what does a conductor and a stage manager what's that relationship like yeah. which you never know unless you're sitting in the back of the room observing mm. um yeah there's and i that, think it's yeah so important there's that moment isn't there in, in any opera production where the rehearsals at the beginning are very much the 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 not the brainchild but they're very much in the care of the director and the stage manager Absolutely. and then there comes a certain point when it's passed over to be becoming the conductor's rehearsals uh, in yeah. conjunction with the director um and if you didn't know that from the start you'd be wondering well why is you know why is he sitting there not saying anything because he knows the relationship and he knows that that now is not the time that uh, it, it's not, you know, it's not signed off. Nobody sends a letter saying, right from here on in, this is your, <laughs> they're now, they're now your rehearsals. But you know what I mean? That to see how that dynamic works it, at that stage is, is invaluable. Definitely. And I mean, even like on the rehearsal call sheet that the, the, the director's initials will always be first until the first it's probe. And then the conductor's initials are first. Yeah. And that sort of small thing that, that, you just wouldn't know unless you'd been in the room and you'd sort of seen yeah. how the dynamics work. Yeah. And the other thing, a, a little phrase has popped into my head, you know, assisting and absorbing and learning by osmosis is wonderful because you're a long time on your own as a conductor. Once you stop assisting yeah. and you're a long time when, you know, you might well have mentors like Sean or Peter Stark or people you might want to be able to ring up and ask advice, but basically you're on your own. Uh, and so, yeah, to, to have those chances to learn I was lucky enough I assisted Andrus on Andrus Nelson's on about four operas um oh, with the CBSO concert performances but to you know to assist him on things like that and I I miss them still I miss the fact you know to sit there and just watch somebody else put these things together um but you know I'm now I'm out there on their own on my own and I can do it myself but you know what I mean that that so just to have that that chance for a couple of years um, fill the sponge up with wisdom and knowledge and experience. Definitely. I think one of the things that I found really interesting about this lockdown period is it's caused, because conductors, we don't really interact with each other very much normally. No, no, and no. I feel like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've, def well, I suppose you have because you started this podcast, but yes. I've ended up becoming fairly close with, with, a, with a number of conductor colleagues in a way that we're now sort of open enough to be able to chat to each other 
about stuff. So, for example, uh, like Ryan Bancroft, who you've had on here, I think, yeah, yeah, principal yeah. conductor of BBC Now, he lives around the corner from me. So we've been for coffee a few times. So we, you know, we had a, a Zoom chat about Weizendonk leader the other day, just you know, because we're both doing it, and it's just like, why not? Yeah, and yeah. I think that's that feels like quite a new thing because it is such a lonely profession, and we don't, you know it's I've, I've it's been really lovely you know getting to know people like him and Alpesh and stuff like that because we're all in the same boat at the same sort of time yes it's you know why not pull ideas and resources and and sort of yeah build a community yeah even on places like twitter and facebook you you know you'll see conductors liking each other's posts or tweets or Definitely. whatever else but but th that's about it until now and as you say with the podcast you know i've now interviewed 60 or 61 conductors and i'm sure if i emailed um, I know which ones I would email for certain things or, or and just said, you know, would, would you give me a piece of advice on this or that repertoire? I think they probably would. And, mm. um, and, and vice versa, if somebody emailed me and said, you know, any chance you could give me advice on conducting this out or the other, I'd happily have a chat about it. And I think before COVID, those chances were very, very rare. Mainly, as you said, because you knew John Hayward from studying with him, you might be able to reach out to him. But and other people who, you know, who knows? Would you, would that have ha ever happened? I don't know. No. Uh, I'm not sure it would have done. No, I think you're right. If you are a young conductor, a conductor just starting out, or you're studying conducting, you may want to know that I have a whole set of podcast interviews that you may find very interesting. This new series includes interviews with the chief executive of a major British orchestra, the chief executive of a major agency, the leader of a major UK orchestra, plus other orchestral musicians, including my fascinating interview with Fergus McWilliam, French horn player with the Berlin Philharmonic, which is available now. If you want to hear their views on what it takes to become a great conductor, as well as gaining access to all manner of conducting-based articles, chats and material, you can when you subscribe for just £5 a month over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. For this small amount each month, you get these interviews plus so much more. Details are in the show notes below. Now, back to my chat with Ben Glassberg. So, back to Glyndebourne, and in particular, opera. So, you become principal conductor Glyndebourne Touring in 2019, and from 2020... 2021, <laughs> basically season 20 slash 21 onwards, um, music director of Opera de Rouen in Normandy. Um, how much time in a year currently, I mean, not obviously not currently because of COVID, but how, <laughs> yeah. much, how much time would you think you're, you intend to spend doing opera productions? Because obviously they, your, your com time commitment to an opera production and then to a run of performances is far greater than it is uh, doing symphonic work. Um, are, you, are you looking at a percentage or are you just going to roll with it and see what happens? So the general rule that we're aiming for with, is about three productions a year. Yeah. Um, then some years there might be more, some years there might be less. So um, in Rouen, we have we have six productions over the course of the year, as well as symphonic series. So I'll be doing two, some years, three uh, productions yeah. and then uh, some symphonic series as well. Um, and then the next. So, well, just finished this year. And then next year is my last year with Glyndebourne Tour. So I'll, that'll be one production. And then the rest of the year is, is mostly symphonic stuff. Yeah. So for me, I mean, the balance is, is key. I find if I'm ever doing productions back to back, it gets to the end of the last one and I am desperate to just just do some symphonic stuff. But mm. then similarly, 
um, early part of 2019, I just did six months of concerts. And by the end of it, I was just craving <clears throat> getting back in the rehearsal room and working with singers again and, yeah, doing some st stage stuff. Because that, uh, as we discussed previously on the podcast, that that level of learning with an opera, it's slower but almost more intense because of the slowness yeah. of that. You know, you go over, you can literally go over a, a sort of, 36 bar period of music over, over and over and over again for an hour with yeah definitely with singers or in a stage rehearsal where the director is talking about specifically difficult moves or the chorus have got to do this or that the other that music becomes ingrained in you in a much more intense way because it's of its slowness i know that sounds like a, a weird thing to say but i think no i think you're is. right and I think as well as the musical reasons it's sort of the, the social aspect of it for me is a big thing so i I find that I get very lonely when I'm on the road and that naturally with an opera production, you just have more time to socialise. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's not very normal that a conductor would socialise with a symphony orchestra when they go in as a guest. That's not, you know, it's not like we're going out for beers every night after rehearsals. Mm. Whereas in an opera production, you get to know the team, the stage management, the directors, the lighting designers, whatever, the singers, and there's more, you get to build slightly deeper friendships because simply because there's more time and quite often you're all stuck in a city where you don't live most mm. of the time. Um, so that aspect of it really appeals to me as well. So particularly when I get to go back to places like in Glyndebourne and Rouen, it feels like sort of family. Um, and, the, you know, so like we've, I've just finished a run at Glyndebourne. We managed to do uh, a production somehow, a sort of COVID safe, mm. um, reduced production. And I just went, moved down there with my wife and son for the month and we just sort of hang out. And it was just almost like normal. It was lovely. I can think of I can think of worse places in the world to hang out. Glyndebourne and oh, Rouen. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you seem Honestly. to have nailed it there. Uh, Rouen's <laughs> a lovely city. Yeah, it's a beautiful city, and they're both so close to the coast. It's absolutely ideal. Yeah. Um. And I mean, so Rouen is is a, is a wonderful city, and I love like my colleagues there and all of that. But to be honest, the food is just extraordinary, and yeah. that is a, that's going to be a big factor. Yeah. I mean, some yeah. like some of the seafood and the cheese that I can have over there. But like, you know, I mean, you don't have to pay, pay ridiculous prices. It's just because it's right by the sea and the French know how to do food. So it's yeah. great. Uh, I'm going to take you out of your comfort zone now and make, make you a leave, uh, not leave, but I'm going to make you uh, come away from Glyndebourne and Rouen and talk about um, guesting and symphonic work because sure. you, you already you've conducted all around the, the globe, it seems. Um, as you you said, the time that it takes with an opera run. You form social relationships very quickly, but also you, you're you judged, I would imagine, much slow, over a much longer period by the singers, by the repetiteurs, then by the orchestra, because there's more orchestra rehearsals. If you're working with an opera company for the first time, you, it takes a, long, a, a longer time period for them to judge you. Um, whereas we all know that when you walk into a symphony orchestra on a Monday morning, and conduct them for the very first time there there are people in that room who are going to judge you not only within five minutes some of them within five bars um yeah. how how is that for you do, i mean does that ever weigh on your mind do you think about that does that impact on the choices of repertoire that you might suggest to an orchestra when you go for the, there for the first time uh, or even the repertoire that you've chosen uh, which piece you would start with on that Monday morning? You know, how does you know how does that affect that? Definitely, I mean, you, all of these things are playing on your mind. I, yeah. One thing I would say is that I've been surprised by how nice um, orchestras have been. Yeah. So, 
I think that gone are the days, perhaps, or at least in the limited experience of the authors that I've worked with, the gone are the days where they want you to, they want to not like you, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I know. I yeah, very yeah. much feel like there, there is always a, you know, there is always that trial period. And certainly, I mean, some orchestras, particularly in the UK that I've, I've gone in front of for the first time, the first hour feels like you are in the firing line. I mean, mm. really terrifying. But once that's happened, it feels like we can just get on with it and do the job. Yeah. And I think provided you can't take things personally because, you know, people are going to respond to you however they respond to you. You can't control that. Fundamentally, you're there to do a job to, you know, you we, we have to be, we should be nice. We should be collegiate. Yes. You know, it, I, I think there is, there's no, there's never an excuse to be um, a tyrant anymore. That's no. just not acceptable. So it's not like you, we're just there to do a job and if they don't like us, that's it. That's not what I'm saying. But as yeah. in, you know, you can't, it, you can't let it be about you, but absolutely that those decisions will definitely come into it. So I will never do a new piece for the first time with a big debut. Definitely yeah. not. Yeah. So for example, I had like Tokyo Symphony Orchestra last year was my sort of biggest uh, work in Asia by a long yeah. way. And I went in with Chike 5, which I've done loads, loads of times. I know it. I feel like I can say something with it. Yeah. And it was great. It was a really lovely experience. And I, you know, I started rehearsals with that piece yes. because yeah. I knew I knew it. And it's a symphony and it's nice that you can give them a big play. I, I always like to give the orchestra, you know, at least a whole movement to play in the first rehearsal, just so we can sort of f get to feel each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah I think so that's, rather than, yeah. I think that's a, a very wise way of doing things. Uh, I, I mean, I remember as a player, that some people would groan if the conductor would, a new conductor would come in and say, well, let's just play through the first movement. Like, oh. uh, whereas I used to prefer that because, as you said, you get to know how they conduct, how what see their face, their musical ideas, um, rather than, you know, somebody would come in and start at the beginning and then stop after the fourth bar and start rehearsing exactly. you. Like, Hang on a minute, I've only just played the first four bars. Why are you rehearsing me? Almost felt like they were rehearsing to a script. Um, which again is wrong. Going back to dance yeah. moves and rehearsing to a script is equally wrong. Um, no, I think I think what you what you do is very wise, and I think most conductors uh, do that. And when you're young, uh, hopefully, you know, either you'd already had those ideas yourself, or your management managers have said to you, you know, go with something you know. Um, yeah, it makes total sense. Um, it does, and it means that when you build a relationship with an orchestra, you can then start to take more risks. So, yeah. like. like the orchestra in, in Lyon, for example, who, who were in the final of the Besançon competition, um, I'm associate guest there. So I'm, I'm there three, three, three or four projects a year. Yeah. And now that I've got to know the orchestra and they've sort of, they're watching me develop and learn, I can take more risks and I can do, you know, big stuff with them that I might not take to the first time I step in front of the LPO, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, having a relationship with an orchestra is great. Uh, I wanted to just go back on something you said earlier on about orchestras not these days not wanting to fight you from minute one um, yes. uh, and and I, I think part of that is uh there, there there was a sort of school of leading by leaders who who basically would come in on a monday morning ready for a fight and mm. now i think a lot of those people have sort of retired or, or that that is not the way that it works uh i mean i i can think of two situations personally where um not so long ago actually i had it wasn't the leader but it was a string principal who just seemed to want to fight from within right. 10 <laughs> minutes in a rehearsal uh and it and 
because it had never happened to me before at all, and at that point I was approaching 750 professional concerts, it, it came as quite a shock. Um, mm. And uh, frankly, I didn't really know how to handle it for a, a little while because it came as such a shock. The other one, the other one that I do remember vividly was going and conducting in Buenos Aires for the first time. And I was met by the chief executive, who's now become a firm friend. And I've been back to Buenos Aires many, many, many times and love conducting there. But he sat me down over coffee before the first rehearsal and said to me, look, you're conducting in South America now. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, no, no I don't think you're understanding me. Maybe I, uh, you're conducting in Buenos Aires now. I said, yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> he said, well, things here are a little different. Um, if they don't like you, there there might be a riot within the first thirty minutes. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you stand in front of an orchestra for the first time, and, and my then my my Spanish was about zero point five percent fluent. You know, I could do numbers and letters. Hello, goodbye. Play faster, play slower. Don't rush. Um, that was it. And uh, when you're stood there thinking, oh God, I've got third. I've got about thirty minutes. Well, I just did exactly what you just said. I got the biggest piece, the piece I knew the best, and I just conducted it. For I looked out of my watch, and I was forty-five minutes into the rehearsal, and there was stony silence. And I thought, okay, I'm done. All right, then it's You're fine. All right. <laughs> yeah, but it was nice to have been warned. Um, but isn't it? Yeah, isn't it lovely to know that in the in by and large, those sort of scenarios don't happen anymore. Uh, you have to be incredibly rude or incredibly stupid uh, to upset an orchestra to that point these days. They'll give you a chance. I think you're right. And I think it's interesting that you were saying about leaders that like, I mean, the relationship with the conductor and the leader is obviously a key one. Yeah. And that that's sort of, I found that the, that the only times that I've had difficult weeks with orchestras, it's always been that that, that relationship is not there. Yeah. So yeah. even when there's tough members of an orchestra, if the leader is, is on your side, that, you know, it, it's okay. I mean, I remember the first time I stepped in front of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, I've now worked with a couple of times. I love them. I was absolutely yeah. terrified yeah, because yeah. it's a BBC orchestra and, you know, they, they have a reputation for, you know, they do a lot of work very in very short space of time. They're tough. But actually, Steve Bryant, the leader, was just so lovely and open yeah, yeah. that I just sort of felt, you know what? OK, this is we're on the same page here. We're on the same team. We're fighting the same battle yeah. rather, you know, rather than against each other. And it just it just made it so much easier. And it's just so it's so nice when when orchestras just sort of want to make make music, and and I really find invariably they just they just want to do a good concert. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's when people remember that it's just let's just make music together and do a good concert, uh, and it's not about point scoring, and I'm not no. nobody's bringing in their own private you know problems from outside. Could be their family life. Or you know they're not they're not bringing their tough relationship that they're having with their desk partner or another string principal and turning it against the conductor as a way of deflecting it. You know that those are the sort of things you know that just doesn't need to happen, as you said. We're Definitely. all we're all making music together. Talking of music, as you will know, as a listener to the podcast, every conductor gets asked about score preparation. When you come to learn a new score, and at your young, tender years, I'm assuming there are a lot of those, um, how do you go about it? Uh, do you have a, a set way of doing it? Do you go from you know the big picture into the smallest details? 
And of course, I must ask you, are you a scribbler? Do you write things in? Are you <laughs> red, blue and black? Or do you, you know, felt it pens? Or are you one of these who sets it all to memory um, or commits it all quite easily into the brain? I'd love to say that I have some sort of amazing methodology that I've worked out and sort of apply to everything, but I'm still very much figuring it all out. Um, as you say, like I, because I'm fa fairly early on in the whole thing, a lot of the, a lot of the time it's new stuff. Yeah. So there's a lot of repertoire learning, and I find that it sort of depends. It, I suppose it, it depends on the piece, and it depends on where I am. Yeah. So if I'm at home when I'm studying it, I'll normally start at the piano just so I can get a sense of what's happening um, harmonically, structurally. So I, I do tend to go big picture, small picture, yeah. but within that general macro structure for want of a better word um i it varies um some pieces i scribble loads and mm. some pieces i hardly write anything and it just sort of and it, i try and remember stuff i had a great story once that someone told me about andrew davis that um someone went up uh, it's a member of the orchestra went up to him to ask him a question and they looked down at the score and they said oh S sir andrew there's nothing written here and he said well i can bloody well read music can't i <laughs> i just sort of think well there's something to be yeah. said for that as well you know yes. you don't necessarily need to scribble but then sometimes i feel that i do i mean for example if i'm doing a cd recording i'll definitely scribble loads because i just you need to have everything all the detail yeah. there um so yeah that's but but yeah sometimes piano if i'm like in a hotel room studying for the next week there's no piano so it's all you know yeah. sitting at your desk in your head stuff occasionally i'll listen to recordings i like to listen to a few different ones particularly if it's if it's a new style of repertoire like um for example the first time i did a bel canto opera it, mm. it's useful to hear what people do because there are traditions that it's useful to know about and you can read up on it and i, I think sometimes we feel a bit shamed into not listening to recordings and i think that, that there are some great recordings and it's good to if you listen analytically there's nothing wrong with that no, I, um, I, th I think it's a level of snobbery uh, about yes. listening to recordings um, because there's so much out there. And I think, you know, be foolish not to listen to the great recordings of the past. Um, Absolutely. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but at least to have heard it and to have heard some uh, in interpretation or interpretive ideas, balances, you know, nuances. It doesn't mean you have to... All you, all you mustn't do is copy one of them. No, you know, exactly, that, exactly, know, it, exactly. Yeah, it's to form, you know, to help you form your relationship with the music and, and find your find your way but to find out how other people do it and how other people have done it um yeah. yeah I mean I think to be honest I think I think snobbery is absolutely right what you say I also think part of it is an arrogant thing that this idea that we're going to be able to say something original about a piece that people have been conducting for hundreds of years and I think <laughs> the, yeah. to try and be original is the wrong aim to try and be authentic to try and be yourself and is absolutely right yes but like you know, yeah. if I'm going to conduct La Traviata and there's a Carlos Kleiber re recording of La Traviata, I'm going to listen to the Carlos Kleiber recording of Traviata. <laughs> yeah, of he's the greatest conductor of all time. So yeah. therefore, I want to know what he says about <laughs> it. Ben, a specific question for you. Um, I don't know whether you're the youngest. You're, you know, I've spoken to quite a lot of young conductors, but you're joining a profession that's obviously been going now well over 100 years and seems to be at a point of change, uh, and I mean for a good, in, in, in a good way. Um, I'm thinking about um, the diversity amongst conductors, how that seems to now be very much uh, on everybody, on the, you know, the, uh, on everybody's minds, and, and it seems to be opening up. What are your thoughts about whether you happen to be joining this profession or have joined it in the last few years at a, at a big moment in the profession, 
and why it's maybe happening now as opposed to why it should have happened decades ago. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a great time to be joining it. And it's also, for me, it's a great time to be the music director of an opera company because I'm in a position where I actually can choose who we get to come in and, and we can we can make decisions that we think reflect the society more more widely rather than just having the usual old sort of middle-aged white men that, that that may have been coming coming for years. I think it is it's bizarre that it's taken us this long for the um the issue to come to the fore in the way it has. I mean, we're so behind so many other professions. It's kind of amazing. I mean, even within classical music, I think conducting is significantly behind composing in terms of, of gender, yeah. certainly, yes. but probably also racial diversity. Um, so I'm really pleased that things are moving in the right direction. And I think there's, I mean, there's, there's so much that needs to be done still. Um, in the sense that we still, I mean, I know from from talking to you with, with other guests you've had, like you know, the fact that the term female conductor still exists is kind yeah. of ridiculous. And I, you know, I was thinking, I, I've got a, a, my son is is only seven months old, and I just sort of was reflecting on this recently. Like, I'd love for him to grow up, and when he is sort of conscious of what I do for a living, that that phrase doesn't exist anymore. Yes. That like for him, it will be perfectly normal to see a, a woman doing daddy's job, and that she wouldn't be called a female conductor. Or, for example, that seeing a black conductor on a programme wouldn't be an, an, an anomaly, that it would be just part of the, yeah. the sort of the, the way things are. Yes. Um, and I think it's amazing that organisations like the BBC are sort of making making statements by having, you know, Marin Alsop, Dalia Sostevska conduct last night, the prom, things like that. But there's obviously like a major access issue, and that is so much lower down that is the problem that I think I... I, I wrote an article recently about this um, for a charity called Spaces, which is about social inclusion. And the number of my friends, uh, female colleagues and friends who wrote to me after saying, here's my experience. One of them, for example, who works in the business said, when she was 15, she said to her music teacher, I'd quite like to, um, to try conducting. And he said, oh, why, why would you bother doing that? You're, <laughs> you're a woman. Yeah. And it's sort of, yeah. she's my age, she's mid twenties. You know, this, yeah. isn't a, this isn't a long time it ago. It wasn't a long time ago. No, that was well, probably, yeah. yeah. In the 2000s. In the 2000s, possibly at the time. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of, it. it's eye opening for me that it it feels like we are making strides, but we still have a long way to go. And I, I'm grateful that I'm in a position, for example, in, in Rouen, the Opera House, the first, the first, one of the first conversations we had when I started as music director there was, we need to seriously look at the diversity of the people that we have as conductors here and the repertoire we're playing yeah. um, and expecting them to, to be resistant to it. And no, of course not. They said, absolutely, what can we do? Let's do it. So we are doing it. Um, you know, it's sort of, I feel like in some ways it's not rocket science because there's really great people out there who, who are from all sorts of different backgrounds and do this job really, really well. And um, you know, often that if I, well, sorry, I get I get my bee in a bonnet about this, and I get really angry. Right. And, people, and people will say things like, "Well, you know, we, we we think we should just take people who who are good, regardless." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's fine. If all of the white men that I've seen conducting were good, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. in a number of places where they've said, oh, you know, we, we we can't just be diverse for the sake of it. We need to have good people. They've had rubbish people. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so I think it's um." I absolutely agree that quality is really important, but the quality is out there and we, we need to, we need to prioritize it to be honest. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, uh, it's very interesting, especially that you talk about uh, the grassroots, you know, if we're going to use sporting terms here, the sort of grassroots levels of the entry yeah. level for 
conductors or, or singers in particular, but this is a podcast about conducting, so I'll stick to conductors. That, yeah, as you say, um, that's I think that's where a lot of the focus needs to be. Hundred percent. Because at the moment, obviously, everybody is talking about. Uh, oh, and it's been you know for a few years now on various. Uh, loud and shouty blogs you may be able to read on the internet about <laughs> about you know why is there not 50 percent of the competitors of a female in the, in a competition well you know maybe maybe the numbers of people who applied weren't 50 percent but you know you know yeah. what i mean the point is that this has now been out in the open and rightly so and been rightly discussed at the very top level now for quite a few years i'm interested very much in 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 seeing who's who's starting at the beginning and when they say i want to be a conductor that they're not put in shackles and they're not told by their music teacher oh don't be so stupid um or other rig- ridiculous career advice yeah i mean in the last uh five or so years i've been doing working at the royal birmingham conservatoire suddenly seen a lot more female students and a lot more student conducting students um and a lot more conducting students from all around the world of all different racial backgrounds as well and i think that that's been great that that now that that grassroots level, if I can call it the conservatory, you know that it, that people are coming in and and so that as they get more and more come up through that system, more and more will enter the enter the profession, and there'll be more and more people for everybody to choose from of you know whatever. Um, so yeah, that's I'm very interested in that. Uh, I, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is. It's, it's all about access. And I think you know. I mean, I I look at myself, and I am a straight white middle class male. I am a prime candidate to be a conductor in the sense yeah. that you know, when I was when I was a music student, I was encouraged to go into to to go into it. It was a sort yeah. of a natural progression. Oh, and I'm a percussionist. So was Robin Ticciati, Simon Rattle, Christopher Seaman. You know, I mean, it's yeah, sort of yeah. that unholy trinity or whatever that it was sort of, it was a natural thing for me to be given those opportunities in a way that I think if I were from a different background, I it wouldn't. And yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, it's race, it's gender, it's also um, social, uh, social class for want of a better word. I think it's, you know, I was very lucky that, I, you know, I grew up, as we were talking earlier, actually about like the county, Hertfordshire is a fairly wealthy county, had a great, you know, music service. So I was encouraged to go into conducting courses there, yeah. but, I'm not certain that certain county councils will have the money and the funding to do that. And I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really encouraged by what you're saying about Birmingham. That's fabulous to hear. And yeah, I think I, also yeah. that's partly because of people like Alpesh who are really great role models. And yes. I think people need to see, which is part of the reason why, as well as the grassroots stuff, we need the, these sort of people to be, to be role models is that people need to see people like themselves and think, Oh, I could actually could do that. Mm. Um, mm. And I think it's wonderful and that, you know, it's the num- now I, I, I get people who are just a few years sort of below me writing to me to sort of ask for advice for first steps out of college and stuff. And actually it's quite often it's women now, which is great. Yeah. Um, and I, I just I'm sort of so encouraged by the fact that it's not just people who look, look like me. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, wait until you're fifty and, and uh, losing your hair. <laughs> well, I mean, the hair's already going. Back, so. All right, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Ben, as you know, as a listener to the podcast, it's now the moment of truth. It's the 10 questions. And and you will know that I always start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? 
So the sound I love, I worry that this will make your listeners think that I'm an alcoholic, but it is definitely <laughs> the sound of a cork popping out of a wine bottle. That's that pop it that just it's that sort of really percussive but kind of round pop that just says okay now we can pour it's yeah. just wonderful in yeah. fact i say to you what it's the it's the cork popping followed by the sound of the pouring into the glass yes yeah. definitely <laughs> well it means it means that something nice is about to happen that it will yeah you know, it's relaxed time indeed definitely yeah. um and the sound i hate is any kind of hold music or lift music, or just if you're on hold with any company, just that, it's normally like the flower duet from Lakme in a really terrible yeah. recording. It just goes on and on and it's just repeated, repeated, and then keeps getting interrupted mid bar for them to say your call is important to us. Just can't <laughs> bear it, cannot bear it. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Good question. So I would probably go, I would ideally not be in London. I'd be in the countryside somewhere. Mm would walk somewhere very beautiful, ideally the Lake District, for several hours to a pub. The walk has to end in a pub, that's the key. Yeah. Have a couple of pints of local ale, walk back, and then spend the rest of the day cooking a massive feast. I absolutely love cooking. Um, preferably like fish that's just been caught locally, like some rainbow trout or something. Yeah, and I just spend a few hours cooking and then have a lovely evening with friends eating the food. Well, I have to say that the, the plot is, though, that the case against your alcoholism is growing. So, so <laughs> that's, that's alcohol in answers one and two so far. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, hopefully that's the last. Oh, actually, I'm sure. No, no. no I think up. question 10 will have some alcohol in it as well. Um, maybe one of the others as well. We'll see. Um, next, who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? So I'll be really boring and start with the obvious, which is Carlos Kleiber. Um, oh, you, sure you did say, yeah. You did say it earlier on, the best yeah. conductor, yeah, yeah. I just find his um, his approach to each different repertoire that he conducts just extraordinary. He he manages to sound totally fresh, but also, you, you know, when you look at the score, when you're, when you're listening to it, it's just completely what the composer's written. There's something so authentic about it. Yeah. And then for specific repertoire, so Mozart and Janacek are two of my favourite composers. So Charles McCarris definitely yeah, yeah. Um, is, a, is a huge hero for that. I mean, he basically, it's, it's his fault that we get so much Janacek these days. He mm. really sort of reintroduced it. Um, yeah, so I just, he was, he was a wonderful, wonderful opera conductor. I mean, and symphonic, but his opera stuff was just beautiful. His understanding of text was really amazing. Yeah, brilliant choice. Not had uh, Charles McCarris before. Um, and somebody I did actually meet, play for, and oh, wow. uh, talk with in particular. I took an arrangement of some uh, Janacek piano music to him uh, that I'd arranged for a small wind group to go oh, wow. with the Vorjak wind serenade. And he took the time to to look at my score, listen to a recording that I'd, uh, we'd made of it in a concert, and then give me some wonderful advice about, he said, well, you know, of course, Janicek would never have used these instruments. Um, <laughs> and I said, well, yes, but the reason why I chose those instruments as a companion piece for the Warjack Serenade. And he said, well, if that's the case, it's brilliant. And I was like, oh, you must suggest <laughs> it to a publishing house, uh, which I know, that was years ago, I've done nothing about. But yeah, he was a lovely, lovely person to talk to and chat with and very open and very nice. So. Oh, wonderful. That's good to hear. And who would be a favourite current conductor? Um, several, I would say, um, so Mark Wigglesworth is my number one hero at the moment. Um, again, opera, he, I, I really think he's one of the best opera conductors in the world. He's mm. amazing. He's also an incredibly 
good man and um i've been fortunate enough to sort of get to meet him several times and become friendly with him and he's always great at giving advice but also is so humble that you know i so i um i've done clemente di tito a few times he's doing it for the first time and he said oh you know you'll have to you have to talk to me about it as if like what what could i possibly tell you you're my <laughs> you're my hero it's like david beckham asking you how to do a left-handed free kick uh, yeah, yeah. left-footed even <laughs> yeah. um so he's he's one of them. Um, I love uh, Karina Kanalakis, who you've had yeah. on the podcast. She's amazing. Um, I saw her BBC Symphony Orchestra debut and was just fixated. I thought it was just so interesting. I love what she does. Um, and I think Yannick Nezé-Séguin, the music director of the Met as well, is just phenomenal. Wonderful yeah. conductor. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, it's a difficult question because I mean everything's hard I suppose for different reasons yeah. but I'd probably say Madame Butterfly Puccini um, for a couple of reasons I mean number one uh, physically it's a big I mean it's not it's not that it's the longest opera ever written but it's it's a lot of conducting yeah. um, a lot of negotiation required mm. um, and it's sort of getting that flexibility of accompanying the singers in, a, in music that has a huge amount of rubato but also needing to give it real structure um, that is really hard and also just emotionally the story is heartbreaking yeah, it's yeah. awful yeah. and it is genuinely it, it really like when I, I've only done a few shows of it but it really takes it out of you um, get, you know getting to the end I mean I, I find like the more I do it the more I listen to it the more emotional I get earlier on so now all she has to do is walk in in the first act and I'm already gone oh, gonna <laughs> yeah. die. I'm so, sad. Yeah. Um, so that piece for me I love it I absolutely love it but it really it really takes it out of me I, I do need to have a very stiff drink at the end of that one yeah um it's funny i've only conducted one piece of procedure that's like that i did um il tritico all three of il oh, tritico's oh amazing not, not everybody does all three but i think you have to do all all three to a degree because the saddest moment of all of course is in the middle of soir angelica or towards mm. the end of soir angelica uh, and you could quite easily lose it um but then you know that um Coming Round the Corner is one of the funniest operas ever written, Jenny Skeeke. Yeah. It's going to lift you, you up uh, out of, you know, out of wherever um, Senza Mama, that aria, has taken you to. You know, Definitely. Um, so I was quite thankful for the fact that we were doing all three. Um, and I actually think that it, it, it makes Jenny Skeeke even better having gone through the the low, dark points of Soir Angelica. I don't know why people cut it out. I really don't. Um, no, I completely agree with you. Yeah. And I'd, I, yeah, three operas I'd love to do again. I really would. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? So this was going to make me sound really precious, but I would say it's my travel fan, um, which is basically like a little portable, like spinny fan thing. Um, I get very hot at night and I also can't sleep um, when it's completely silent. So I have to take my travel fan with me in order to get a good night's sleep. Um, my friends at university used to take the mic. They called it my air poshifier. Um, but it literally, honestly, can't sleep without it. I get really hot and, and restless. So there we go. Well, if you're, if that makes you precious, I'm in the precious club as well because I have one in my carry-on luggage for planes. Right. I prefer, I prefer the old planes where you could. There's a directional nozzle of air that you can point at your face rather yep, than always. the modern ones. Uh, and if if it's a modern one and they, they and it's not cool enough for me, I will get my little travel fan out, and I don't care who, what anybody thinks of me. So there, yeah, we can be we can be precious together. I'm so pleased. No, honestly, it's, the, it's also this, the first thing I do when I sit down on a plane. I plug myself in and I immediately switch the nozzle on directly into my face on full blast. Yeah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> exactly the same. 
What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I would get rid of the word maestro, definitely. Hurrah. Which I think I know you'll agree with, yeah. I, um, uh, yeah. I would get rid of it because I think, well, there's two reasons. The sort of main sort of serious reason is that I think it's it's become embroiled in this, in a sort of power scandal over a series of, of decades where the maestro has all this power and, and the abuses that we hear about now, you know, sexually and otherwise are sort of bound up in that name. The other yeah. reason is that I feel really uncomfortable being called maestro because if you get called maestro in the UK, it's because the orchestra hate you and they're taking the piss. <laughs> Absolutely. And true. if you get called it, ab- <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. And if you get called it abroad, it's this out of this sort of weird deference that makes me feel very uncomfortable, particularly yeah. as a young person. So I would get rid of maestro because it's just really annoying. And yeah, I don't like it. Well, you you know that I feel exactly the same. I agree yeah. with you completely about the UK. If somebody calls you maestro, they really are having a dig at you or taking the, yeah. the piss out of you. Uh, I hated it when one particular presenter in Birmingham for some family concerts decided to call me Mike-stro. Uh, it was just oh, the worst of all things. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. And, uh, and yeah, I, I hated the... You know, the word anyway but then to have my name sort of intertwined into it i just i just wanted to crawl under the podium <laughs> nightmare yeah, yeah the, oh, so if you're listening out there stop calling us maestro please <laughs> um number nine what profession other than your own would you like to attempt i would definitely love to be a chef if i wasn't a conductor um, I just I absolutely love cooking. It's the one thing that keeps me sane and particularly through lockdown and, I've, and as I've not been able to work the last few months, just cooking every day. Um, yeah. And I love I love cooking and I love other people eating my food and watching their face when they eat it, when it's good, when it's bad. I don't want them to have it and I get very stressed. But I would. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be a chef. Um, and and I'd have, I'd, I'd, yeah, a vegetarian restaurant does fish as well. A pescatarian restaurant. That would be yeah. my that would be my thing anyway. And the, and the similarities between head chef and conductor, you, you can see those, I'm sure. Definitely. Yeah. Power controlled, nut, <laughs> like nut jobs, going a bit crazy, <laughs> drink too much. Yeah, absolutely. No, but definitely. I mean, there is that, that being ultimately responsible for a creative goal, but needing to delegate and have other people, you know, empowered to do that their best job. There's yeah. a lot of similarities. Um, and similarly, I, if, if I wasn't either of those, I'd probably want to be a vicar. And there's also lots of similarities between vicars and conductors in the sort of style of leadership. So yeah. there's something about this way of, of life that I think appeals to me that I would probably want to do if I wasn't a conductor. Going back to chefing a minute, um, do you think if you were to run a kitchen, you would run it like Ben Glassberg, the conductor? Or do you think you're, you might turn into a sort of Gordon Ramsay type person in your, in your kitchen? I think sadly you can't run a kitchen like Ben Glasberg, the conductor. I think <laughs> I think you have to be a bit more direct, and I think I'd, I'd yeah I would probably end up veering more towards that that style. But then actually, like my favourite sort of famous chef is Angela Hartnett. She's amazing, yeah, and yeah. she's apparently actually a very nice person as well as being you know she's she's direct, but she's Tough, not sort yeah, of rude. Yeah. So I'd love to be sort of like someone like that. Brilliant. Well, if there ever could be a, a better segue into question 10 um and you know what's coming um if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink 
So it would definitely be a Japanese feast. Mm, um, I think particularly of one restaurant uh, that I went to when I was in Tokyo last year um, after the concert. Um, I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, but it was one of those things where we just ordered so much. There was sushi, sashimi, tempura, uh, okonomiyaki, and then there was some like uh, steamed tofu and just some extraordinary bits of fish. Um, and I'd have that, all of that with, I'd start with some sake and then I just move on to the single malt and it would sort of alternate Japanese Scottish single malt because they love um Scottish single malt over there which I hadn't yeah. realized um and I would so we would we would have this meal in this sushi restaurant and then we would go to this amazing um whiskey and cigar bar called Helmsdale it, which is in like a back street in a suburb of Tokyo which looks like an apartment building and you go up these stairs and you go inside and it's just wall to wall full to the brim with rare whiskies from Scotland and Japan. And we would finish the evening in there, definitely. Whiskey and cigars. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible way to go. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm, well, if I'm it's with the last you. meal you're going to die anyway, you might yeah. as well go out with a blaze of glory. Absolutely. Let's, yeah. Let, let, fish and hard spirits. Yeah, let's do it. Um, what a real treat. Uh, it's been chatting to you, Ben. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope after all of this mad COVIDness, that uh, we get to meet and maybe we can sit down over a single malt and a cigar and have another good old chat. That would be lovely. I'd love that. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an Italian conductor who I first saw conduct when she appeared in a set of masterclasses with Daniele Gatti and the Concertgebouw Orchestra. She was the Tacky Concordia Fellow from 2015 to 2017, and in the summer of 2020, she was appointed Music Director of the Richmond Symphony Orchestra in the United States. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>